Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Christian Leffler. Christian Leffler has very recently retired as Deputy Secretary General of the European External Action Service. Um, you were there very much at the, at the outset, at the creation of the European External Action Service, Christian. So I'm keen to, before we talk about current affairs and the current challenges facing the European Union, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about the, the birth of the External Action Service. But it strikes me that when we had a gentleman called Javier Solana performing this role as High Representative for Foreign Security Policy before the service was actually in operation, you were Deputy Head of Staff of Chris Patton, who in the European Commission was Commissioner for External Relations. So in a sense, you had already back in 1999, 20-odd years ago, two individuals, two different institutions dealing with foreign security policy. How did that work in practice, the overlap? Well, indeed, the uh, creation of the post of High Representative in 1999, which was then taken up by Javier Solana, was an innovation at the time um, and complemented the work done by the External Relations Commissioner of uh, the European Commission. Um, fairly early on, we established a very close relationship between um, Patton and Solana and between the two cabinets. We met very regularly. And fairly early on, we came to the conclusion that what the European Union really needed was not a Patton and a Solana. What we needed was a Patana. Uh, <laughs> in other words, bringing the two together. Right. Uh, Solana had the profile. Solana had the political backing from member states, which gave a degree of authority. Patton had all the instruments from the wide array that the Commission can mobilize. And obviously, if we are to be effective in European foreign policy and foreign European external relations, we need to bring those two together. And so that's what we tried to do, even though the treaty didn't foresee it at the time. Uh, that's why we welcomed back in whatever it was, 2005, with the European Convention, as it was called, um, the ideas brought forward there of creating a joint post, which daringly, ambitiously at the time, they called the post of European foreign minister. We know that that convention didn't come to anything, and therefore we waited a few more years. And then in the Lisbon Treaty, um, the fusion of the two posts, now called the HRVP, High Representative and Vice President of the Commission, came about. Right. Well, we'll talk about that fusion in a second, but my own memory from those days, 20-odd years ago, observing Mr. Solana from a distance, obviously, was that he, he didn't have much resources or budget or, or even uh, political support at the time. It, was, it seemed like it came across at the beginning, certainly, of his days as high representative as a kind of an experiment which may or might, may not succeed. Is that a fair assessment? Well, he certainly didn't have any budget, for example, because... The EU treaty foresees that only the Commission can spend operational budget. That's still a problem today with the External Action Service and the High Representative. We can come back to that. Um, but Solana, therefore, um, focused rightly entirely on giving profile, giving political profile to the post. Uh, some people uh, rather nastily said that he was present at all the weddings and all the funerals. <laughs> um, true, but that was his job. Right. And he did mark a strong presence. We tried from Patton's side to do what we could to back him up because there was a full realization that rivalry and trying to edge each other out, elbow each other out, would be silly. Um, whereas if we could work hand in hand, 
that would make both positions stronger. Right. Well, we've heard a lot, and people often say, especially in Brussels, that, or outside Brussels for that matter, that the European Union is, a, is an economic giant but a political pygmy. Does that, it seems like a rather simplistic phrase, but do you think that's, that was in the, uh, in the back of leaders, European leaders' minds when they actually made the, the leap into actually creating the European External Action Service? Yeah, I think it is an exaggeration to say that uh, the EU is a political pygmy. Uh, if it is, it's, it's actually been able to create a remarkable degree of leverage for uh, such a small actor. Uh, and you can see that in different places in, ar around the world. But um, yes, I think, of course, what they wanted was to, to strengthen the projection, strengthen the political clout of the EU uh, beyond the traditional areas uh, linked to economy, trade and development. But I think, in a sense, you can go even further back. You can go 30 years back, 1989, the great change in Europe in 89-90. Um, because the, the, there you had the debate on uh, whether or not the EU should engage in the process of liberation of Eastern Europe and whether or not one should early engage on the path towards expansion of the Union. Fairly quickly, I think, people realized that that question was incorrect. Firstly, when it came to EU enlargement, that's the destiny of the Union. If you go back to the Treaty of Rome, it says an ever larger Union of European peoples. We can't turn our back on those who legitimately want to join, because if we do it, we, we change the nature of the Union. And as to its role on the European and international stage, there was a gradual realization that the EU is sufficiently big, if you like the economic giant, mm. that inaction is the choice as much as action is. Right. Therefore, rather than just following events and adjusting to them, you want to try to shape them and then you need to create the institutions to go with it. Right. Well, I promise we'll come to some of the substance of the current challenges facing the EU and the External Action Service by extension in a second. But I want to move on a bit to the actual moment of the creation of the External Action Service. You were very much part of the, the small group uh, present at the birth of the External Action Service and helped to influence its construction. But it was interesting, wasn't it? It was quite an experiment in, in bureaucratic terms, if nothing else, in terms of the the structure and the and the the personnel uh, who, would, who would be part of this new service by taking officials from the European Commission, officials from the Council Secretariat, as I understand correctly, and also most importantly, most innovatively, officials from the national foreign ministries and stuff. Was that a, that was presumably a, de a deliberate attempt to make sure that there was buy-in from all different sides? Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the the merging the functions of the high representative with that of EU external commissioner or vice president for external relations meant at any rate you needed staff from both the council secretariat and the policy unit that had supported Solana and his functions there and the different external services of the commission. But to ensure that there was buy-in and support from member states and to benefit from the diplomatic experience of member states uh, it was agreed very early on that this should be a hybrid service that would also bring in a significant number of staff from national diplomatic services. And I do think that that has, has actually been a real advantage. It is, of course, sometimes difficult to marry different administrative cultures, 
but um, it does bring in a, a much wider array of experiences and views and possible policy contacts which we can then use to, to strengthen the basis on which we build European foreign policy. Right. So we have the creation of the high representative now, and we have the creation of a, of a proper organization to support him or her. Uh, but as you said just now, it is a double-hatted function, and the high representative is also a senior member of the, of the European Commission. That seemed like a, almost like when Catherine Ashton became the first high representative vice president, it was seen almost like a, a poison chalice, a huge amount of maybe prestige and power, but also an impossible job to do effectively in two different institutions. How has that, how has that turned out? Is it seen as a, a successful experiment or was it maybe not a very good idea, but it's too late to change? I think it's, it's gradually bedded down. It took a while to do so, both at the level of uh, the political leadership, the high representative vice president, and for the service itself. Um, I mean, I think uh, you, you couldn't really say that the, the external action service was welcomed with open arms by either the commission or the council secretariat. <laughs> it was much more seen as a baby cuckoo that flew into the nest. Um, <laughs> and there were institutions that felt they were perfectly capable of doing this job themselves. So why did we need a new service, a new organization? Um, and that created, let's be frank, uh, a degree of friction in the early years of the service, which certainly I, both when we created it and then in my 10 years in various functions before I retired, uh, saw as one of my main jobs to, to try to overcome those hurdles, to try mm -hmm. to, to reduce the friction uh, and make sure that uh, we could work effectively together. I think we've come a very long way. Uh, we're not quite as far ahead as I would have liked us to be when I left, but um, we're on a very good path. At the political level, um, the, the, I mean, the challenge is certainly there. Um, and I would say that there's, the challenge comes in different forms. There's, there's a work burden. The uh, HRVP is vice president of the commission, high representative representing the council and member states, chair of the Foreign Affairs Council, mm. uh, and then various other bits and bobs, uh, which just means that uh, it, it's an incredibly stretched job, uh, time-wise, mm. having to travel the world as well, because yeah. all our member states expect a high representative to go to whichever corner of the world is a particular priority for them, mm. which means every corner of the world becomes a priority. Um, and then, of course, you have a kind of institutional um, tension uh, which will always be there, I think, uh, because as vice president in the commission and as high representative, the HRVP uh, is there as the, 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 the initiator of policy, the one who proposes, the one mm. who presents action plans, whatever it might be. Um, in the council, as chair of the council or representing member states, um, he or she is there as the mediator to find the balance, to find the compromise. Mm. So the high representative has to find the compromise on the proposal he or she has made himself. Mm. Uh, and obviously, having made the proposal, they think that is the balance and that's the right one. And it's then rather difficult to change hat and say, 
now I'm going to, to adjust my proposal in the common good. But that's part of the job and it's, it's part of, of what we've had to grow into. I, I don't want to belabor this belabor this point i'm just curious to know whether you think that the job is almost too impossible in terms of i can imagine if you're high representative you want to obviously focus on and give priority to your work as high representative and your job as a member of the commission college is i wouldn't say less important but uh, it takes a slightly lower priority and i just wonder whether in your assessment going back the 10 years you were at the external action service where we had high representatives in in function that they they found it almost impossible to fulfill their function as a as a European commissioner as well. I do find I, I do think that they've found it difficult to strike the right balance. Uh, and I think looking back, uh, the first one we had, Catherine Ashton, she focused very much on the high representative role. Maybe inevitable because it was it was new, he was also running a new service and all the rest of it. But that did mean that uh, she didn't build the same intimate relations with the rest of the College of Commissioners right. and therefore find it more difficult to mobilize uh, the various policies that the Commission has at hand that can support our external action. With um, Federica Mogherini, uh, she was very clear from day one, which I remember her telling us as senior staff, please remember that I am High Representative and Vice President all the time. So never try to put the high representative against the vice president because then right. you're putting me against myself. However, in balancing that, juggling that, she maybe found it more difficult to maintain the close and intimate contact with all the member states, with all her peers in the Foreign Affairs um, Council. Um, and therefore, there was at times a frustration from member states that she was moving ahead without them. Um, you may say that that's actually what a high representative should do because they should take initiative. But there's a fine balance to strike there too. Uh, I think uh, with the current one, you said Borel, you have someone who has a very long political experience, who has through that also uh, a, a kind of um, authority in the council, having been in the council for so many years. Mm. Um, he will have to find that balance for himself. I, I don't think, coming back to what your, your question, I don't think that you can say that the one side or the other, high representative or vice president, uh, is more or less important. Um, in fact, the whole point is, you can only be effective in the one or the other if you always combine them. Right. Because a high representative, in terms of overall policy, will set out a policy orientation but will then want uh, the rest of the commissioners, the rest of the college, whatever the area is, uh, to step up and support that policy orientation, whether it's the commissioners for trade, for development, uh, for humanitarian issues, for energy, for transport, for whichever area, because they all come into play. Right. One of the other challenges there, not just for the high rep, obviously, but also for the European Union's uh, foreign security policy uh, ambitions is, is this requirement, requirement, and correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, of, of unanimity across the board. Uh, is that true that in all areas of foreign security policy, any decisions taken by member states have to be taken by unanimity? Is that correct? There, there are some exceptions, but indeed, yes, the general rule is that in foreign and security policy, 
like in some other areas, but uh, very clearly in uh, foreign and security policy, unanimity is the rule. And that is, on occasion, uh, a problem. Uh, I would even say it's probably become more of a problem in recent years than it was, because um, the, 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 the fundamental cement, the cohesion of understanding uh, loyalty and solidarity between member states uh, has sometimes been strained by domestic political crisis or uh, by deep political differences between some of our member states and their leaders. Mm. Well, uh, the EU has been saying for quite some time, and, and, it's, and the commentariats surrounding the EU have been saying some, some time, even before Ursula von der Leyen became president of the European Commission, that the EU has to, in the foreign security world, has to speak more with one voice. And the only way to do that, which I find a slight paradox, is by introducing qualified majority voting to replace unanimity. But surely that means that, the, that is, you may get a, something coming out at the end, uh, but it won't have the support of the minority who are outvoted. Yeah, I, I think I mean, you're, you're quite right. And I think, um, of course, um, qualified majority voting or decision-making might seem like an easy, quick fix. Uh, but there are indeed dangers that go with it because uh, this is not about adopting a piece of legislation and once it's adopted that's it we have a framework that everybody will apply this is about political choices foreign policy is policy not law right. uh, and therefore those who would be outvoted will not feel entirely bound by the policy will not feel that this reflects their concerns and their interests and it may therefore ultimately end up undermining some of what we want to achieve. That doesn't mean that there would be no place for qualified majority. You can, and you've probably seen it, there have been this, uh, suggestions, um, some of which I think are rather good. Um, you take an area like um, sanctions or targeted measures, as they are formally known. Um, the principle of establishing a set of measures against a country, against an organization, mm. I think everybody agrees that's something that must be adopted by unanimity. Everybody needs to be on board for the principle. Once the principle is established, what exactly the list looks like of individuals or entities that are the subject to targeted sanctions could perfectly well be adopted and modified by qualified majority because okay. it's then within a framework that has been set by oh. everyone. Okay. Right. Toward the end of last year, when Ursula von der Leyen became president of the commission, she made a great point of saying this is going to be a geopolitical commission. Um, first of all, a two-part question, Christian. What do you think she, she meant by that? And secondly, was she wise to say it at all? I, I think what Mrs. von der Leyen meant with the phrase geopolitical commission um, is very much a reflection of the ambition that goes back to the Lisbon Treaty of saying we really need to pull together all the different strands of our action more effectively into uh, a, a concerted external projection. Uh, we, we moved from the traditional commission to Jean-Claude Juncker's political commission, uh, which took much stronger uh, political, or, uh, which had a higher political profile in the action it was taken. Um, 
but we still very much uh, focused on different areas as separate policy uh, processes. Mrs. von der Leyen also in the rather intricate infographics that this commission has put out um, <laughs> has created something that um, looks more like a kind of a circle or flower with lots of interconnections. And I think the point there is very much to say what we do in all these different areas will have an effect elsewhere. I'll come back to an example, I, or yeah, an example I mentioned earlier, um, energy and energy policy. Uh, there's a very obvious external dimension to energy policy, right. which has to do about energy security, both in terms of sourcing, where does it come from, and can we have stability in areas where it comes from, um, and the immediate supplies, um, the, the whole process of consolidating the European gas market is very much about making sure that we have interoperability, that we can exchange gas between all European countries so that they don't become victims of pressure from outside sources that may no longer want to supply them. Um, that, therefore, is a very good example of how we need to work hand-in-hand between the external dimension, foreign policy, uh, in order to stabilize regions of um, essential supplies to us, um, and energy policy in making sure we have an effectively, um, efficiently working market. So that's the sort of issue that mm. I believe is a good reflection of a geopolitical commission when we get that to work well and we all work hand in hand. Will it, will it work? Uh, was it the right thing to say? I think we need to wait a couple of years more to see uh, if we can live up to the ambitions, but I'm glad that the ambition is there. Right. Well, that's a good cue, Christian, to move to maybe the last part of this, of this podcast to talk about the, the current intra, if you like, not just the Joseph Burrell, but the European Union as a whole, the challenges it's, it's, facing, it's facing and how things, if you were still in charge, as you were until very recently, how, what, what tools need to be there uh, and what are the potential pitfalls lurking around the corner. So without obviously being exhaustive and comprehensive, if there were to be a small number, in your judgment, of top issues that the uh, the EU has to face, not just the external action service in the foreign and security area, what which would be your top pick? Right, that's a, a tall order. Um, <laughs> you didn't think I say comprehensive; just one or two would be fine. No, I think I mean we we the, we we need to look at them in 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 many different ways. I would start with what I still believe is the overarching existential issue for all of us, which is climate change. Right. Climate change inevitably requires very strong external action. Even if Europe were to stop emitting anything at all, if the rest of the world doesn't do anything and continues to emit, um, we're stuffed. So we need to reach out, we need to work with others, we need to support others, we need to build the coalitions to take that work forward. That brings in multilateralism, it brings in development cooperation, it obviously then brings in climate and environmental work, and again, things like transport and energy. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very complex set of issues. We also know that climate change has contributed to 
let's call it societal stress in other parts of the world and that stress has led to conflict internal conflict or state-to-state -state conflict mm. so that brings us to the area of security um, and the the I think the remarkable development we've seen over the past five years in particular, but let's say the past five, ten years, in terms of increased European action in security and defense. Um, the, the, this is never going to be, in my view, a question of the territorial defense of Europe. That is for states or for those who are members of it for NATO. But it is about projecting security and working for security and stability outside the union and making more efficient our internal cooperation thereby also supporting the efforts of nato there you have things like military mobility within the union but we've got the whatever it is i, I never remember exactly but 15 16 uh, current csdp missions security and defense missions around the world about two-thirds of them civilian, one-third of them military. And what do they do, um, these in, missions? Explain what these missions do, though. What does a CSDP do? Well, some, some of them are advisory, which means that they are there to support, to train, uh, and guide uh, local, national, or regional forces. That's, for example, the case for most of our missions in the Sahel area. Um, some are executive missions that actually take on a uh, very direct responsibility for um, controlling um, uh, or, or supporting um, uh, actions in different parts of the world. One, one of the longest standing and actually most effective is the so-called Operation Atalanta off the coast of the Horn of Africa, right. um, which keeps sea lanes open, which has fought back piracy uh, and in doing so has also contributed to the stabilization of the situation in Somalia, where as another part of our security and defense action, um, we give very strong support to the African Union peacekeeping in Somalia, right. both financially and through training. So those are some examples of, of what can be done. Um, there are many others. One, the, the largest one we have is the so-called EU Lex mission in Kosovo. Um, right. which uh, has, uh, uh, I mean, in many ways, essentially runs a large part of the, the legal system, the judiciary in Kosovo, um, until the situation is uh, sufficiently stable for it to stand on its own two legs. So that's, that's another part of that. Um, the, the, I mentioned multilateralism. Yeah. Uh, much of what we do uh, depends on how we can work with others. Uh, and I therefore believe whether it's, as I mentioned, on climate change, on trade, on migration issues, um, on security for that matter, uh, in all these areas, we need to find ways of working with others. And it's in our genes. It's very much in the nature of the EU. We are ourselves at the regional level, a reasonably successful example of multilateral cooperation, of rules-bound cooperation. And therefore, whenever we see the opportunity, we want to project that also into how we work on the global stage. Right. Maybe a final question then, Christian. Um, I know normally you wouldn't uh, presume to suggest this, but I invite you to do the following, which is to, to offer some advice to Joseph Burrell. Um, 
in order for him to be as effective high representative in the next four and a half years or so as, as possible based on your experience of the past 10 years during the creation of the external action service and seeing in operation his two immediate predecessors uh, in a few short words what advice would you give even privately to uh, to joseph burrell about how to be uh, an as effective high rep as possible i would maybe point to three things right um first i'd say don't be too shy okay. don't be too cautious uh, I know that may sound odd, and of course the EU would be wrapped down by member states uh, for sticking its neck out too much. But if we don't stick our neck out, nobody else will. Or else there will be lots of necks sticking out, and it will be in an unseemly and uncoordinated fashion. Right. Second, I would say delegate, and that may seem as a contradiction, but I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. Delegate means delegate both within the commission as vice president, say yes, he's the vice president in charge of external relations. Read the treaty, all external relations. He does actually have a cluster of commissioners mm. for development, for trade, for neighborhood, right. and humanitarian action, if you include that one, yeah. um, who are all in the external cluster. Well, then delegate in a structured fashion and say, well, you will take care of this business you will go to those meetings right. um you do all this under my authority we work as a group and i am the vice president but i want you to run with it because otherwise he's going to be overburdened similarly on some issues um and particularly when it comes to those that are closer to member states perception of their sovereignty like security and defense Delegate out to some of the foreign ministers or defense ministers. All right. You establish the frame. You establish the direction. But then there was a very good example uh, in the last half year or so of Federica Mogherini's mandate when we saw the radical changes in the Sudan, where the, 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 the revolution or whatever you want to call it, the popular uprising and the toppling of the Omar al-Bashir junta. Um, she turned to the Finnish foreign minister, who happened to have a UN background having worked with the Sudan as well, and said, right, I'm not going to have time to follow this as closely as I would like to. I'm not going to have time to go there as frequently as I would like to. Will you do it for me and report back to the council? And that worked very well. The third piece of advice, you said, don't be shy, delegate. And you said there's a the third one or? Yes. Um, and I may even, if we have time, add a fourth one. The third one okay. um, is stand up for principles. Uh, okay. We often hear, I often heard, uh, that we now live in a different world. We should forget about uh, the European Union um, as a union of values. We have to be much more hard-nosed and look at our interests. And we should have an interest-based policy, not a values-based policy. My point is, there's no contradiction. Our values are our most fundamental interest. And that is how we are seen around the world, sometimes annoyingly so, but people do expect us to stand up for these values. And I think it is important that we do. Okay. The very last point, uh, and that has to do with some of what we discussed, including on the delegation side with member states. Um, and you talked before about the, the development uh, of a single policy and the use or not of um, qualified majority. Actually, 
And it's something that um, my former boss, Chris Patton, used to remind us of. Uh, the treaty doesn't talk of a single foreign policy. It talks of a common foreign policy. Right. Um, common foreign policy means we should draw the best out of what we all have. We have a common level at the sort of level of the HRVP and the EAS, but we also have all the national levels and we should bring them together. And to go further on that reasoning, you can say that the important thing is not to have a single policy and a single message. The important thing is that we all sing from the same hymn sheet. And as, in, as anybody who likes choir music will know, if you have a well-rehearsed choir singing in tune, it is a transcendental experience. It brings something which is much greater than just the addition of the voices. Right. But it only takes one to sing out of tune and it's pretty bloody awful. Well, on that musical note, we have to leave it there. Christian Leffler, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul.